Hello, and welcome to the Palladium Podcast. I'm your host, Senior Editor Wolf Tyvey. Today, I have with me Nicholas Paul Bryceowitz from the Long Now Foundation. Hi, Nick. Hey, Wolf. How's it going? It's great. Well, you know, as much as it can be great in, in such times. Um, so the idea we had today is we wanted to do something sort of slowing down our time scale here a little bit. Um, look at, from the perspective of this coronavirus pandemic situation, but look at it not as an opportunity to kind of like go into crisis mode and, and really tackle immediate problems and point fingers and come up with solutions and so on, but, but to step back a little bit and reflect on how we relate to time, how we relate to the world, how we relate to civilization, and, and some of these larger questions. Just kind of take the coronavirus pandemic as an opportunity for philosophical reflection. And uh, Nick is a well-read guy, and, and he works at the Long Now Foundation, whose basic mission is to promote long-term thinking. So I thought this would be a great opportunity to kind of explore some of these concepts. So, Nick, if you could give us a bit of an introduction of yourself, your role at the Long Now Foundation, and how you think about things philosophically, I think that could get us started. Thanks, Wolf. Um, so, again, my name is Nicholas Paul Breisowitz. I'm so glad I know how to pronounce your last name, by the way, Wolf <laughs> Tyvee. This is good. Uh, if that's the only thing I take away from this entire podcast, it'll be super worthwhile. Um, yeah, I work with the Long Now Foundation, and we're a group of people who run a nonprofit organization here in San Francisco, California where we're trying to help people think long-term. And for us, that's on the context of, you know, in the framework of the next and last 10,000 years, which 10,000 years is about the scale of civilization. So in a world in which science and technology have granted us powers at the scale of civilization, it seems only appropriate that we would expand our thinking to the same scale so that we are able to meet it in an appropriate degree. And the real big question out there is how, how do we do that? How do we start to think on these longer timescales? It's fairly unnatural for us. Um, and in the present moment, we seem to be, if anything, accelerating. Our sense of the present moment seems to be collapsing from this year, this season, this election cycle, this conversation, to literally what happened on Twitter in the last 25 minutes. So um, in a certain sense, you know, as we accelerate, there's never been a better time to offer a counterbalance to the culture, something that allows you to step back and see things in a broader framework, maybe gives you some permission to begin things that aren't going to be finished in 25 minutes, perhaps right. begin things that aren't going to be finished in your lifetime or in this century, and that that's okay, that all things that all things that have existed across generations had to begin somewhere, and now is as good of a time as any. In fact, if you're looking out at the next 10,000 years, this present moment is as leveraged as you're ever going to be. And so if you wanted to start a project that would span a hundred or a thousand years, yesterday was a good day to get started. A thousand years ago was an even better time to get started, uh, but today is about the best you're going to have. And so in a certain sense, we're looking at these broad frameworks as granting people a sense of agency, sense of responsibility, uh, and then also a sense of gratitude for the inheritance of the last 10,000 years, all of the things that led to this, this moment that you and I are in right now. So, again, the big question mark is how do you get people to think long-term? We don't really have a concrete answer for that, so we're trying a lot of different things. We have a lot of different projects. Uh, we're most known for a project that started in 1996, so almost 25 years ago, and that project is the Clock in the Long Now, which is a massive mechanical monument-scale clock that is housed in a mountain in West Texas, that's uh, and it's designed to keep perfect time 
really good time, accurate time for the next 10,000 years. And so that clock is still under construction right now. It'll probably be open in my lifetime. And uh, one of the unique aspects of this clock is, uh, Wolf, when you visit it in some time in the next 10,000 years, it'll have a bell chime like all good clocks. It'll chime at solar noon. And the bell chime that you hear on the day that you visit is going to be a chime that's uniquely constructed for you and your visit, meaning that no other human being has ever heard that bell chime before, and no other human being in the next 10,000 years will ever hear it again. It's just for that day. And so this is kind of meant to be a provocation to juxtapose the ephemeral, you know, the ephemeral moment that you're in with this grander moment of you know, the next and last 10,000 years, which is where we get our namesake from. We call that 20,000 year wide period, the long now. So 10,000 years back is about when we came out of an ice age, kind of kicked off this whole civilizational phenomena. And so barring any information to the contrary, instead of thinking that we're at the end of the civilizational project, we can see ourselves as being in the middle of it, uh, 10,000 years on either side. And so the clock is one way that we think we can help people orient themselves in a larger more appropriate context temporally. Um, we also have some language archiving projects and we've landed some of these archives on a comet and on the moon. And I've oh, got about a hundred of them around the globe. Yeah, that, that project is called the Rosetta Project. It's part of the Long yeah. Now Foundation as well. We've had our hands in the de-extinction of the woolly mammoth and the passenger pigeon through the Revive and Restore project that we've worked with closely. Yeah, very fascinating stuff. Um, Last podcast, I think, actually, or perhaps the one before that, I talked to Nikita Zimov from the Pleistocene Project, where they're trying to bring back the Ice Age ecosystem in Siberia. And that's where, if someone did revive and restore the woolly mammoth, that's where it would go. So, yeah, totally interesting projects. Yeah, so Long Now is kind of trying to explore all of these different things um, as vectors or ways of getting us to think differently about our place and time. And again, we're pushing for what we think is a more appropriate framework. Um, not necessarily saying we should transform our temporal framework so that we're all just thinking in these 10,000-year increments. Um, of course, there's the immediacies and the exigencies of the present moment, which is what we're going to discuss today. Um, but there needs to be some kind of a cultural counterforce out there, or we feel that there's yeah. a need for a cultural counterforce out there, and so we're doing what we can to provide it. Yeah, I mean, you guys are doing a great job. Uh, the clock definitely gets a lot of attention, and then you've been articulating... Um, a very interesting perspective with respect to time and, and, and that's sort of what what got me to to bring you on today really is is that you guys have been putting out that signal um, and, and convincing us. Well thanks. Thanks again for having me on here. I mean I've been as as I think everybody has been thinking really deeply about this situation that we're in because I think I think it'll come to be known as a world historical moment. Um, for I sure. see I see no way in which this becomes a blip on the radar. This seems like a pretty significant event. Of course, these things are always hard to judge from the inside. Um, yes. But I think also the comportment to adopt to these things is as if it's a world historical moment. In fact, I think um, in a certain sense, that's a great way of comporting yourself to your own moment in time, is this is an important moment. It's the moment that you're here, right? It's the moment that you're you're an agent um, there's been 10,000 years in which you haven't been, and we're pushing for another 10,000 in which you also won't be probably. And so here you are, here we are in this moment. And how do we do justice to it by treating it as significant and worthwhile and worth thinking? Um, and so as I've been thinking about what's going on there in the world, the one thing that's really striking me 
uh, in the theme of temporality is just this idea that you keep hearing, you're hearing people talk about time in a very funny way right now. And, uh, you know, let me know if this is what you're hearing out there too, but I keep hearing things about how Italy is 10 days ahead of us or China is two months ahead of us. Now that's a really funny thing to say, right? And it's even funnier thing that we all know exactly what we mean. Like no one's actually postulating that Italy is somehow hopped into a time machine and gotten ahead of us or that China has somehow done that and gotten ahead of Italy. But we all just very casually adopt this, uh, adopt this again, to use the word comportment towards time that we just say things very casually like, oh yeah, San Francisco is a few days ahead of the rest of the United States on this thing. Um, And I think what's interesting about that is, is that we're all talking about, yeah, we're ahead of it in coronavirus time, right? There's this, there's this really math grounded, model for how the coronavirus is transmitted that helps us see that if we're down here on this part of the curve and China's over here on this part of the curve, they are in a certain interesting sense ahead of us, right? Yeah. And, and this, this is, uh, there's a very interesting assumption behind that, which is a relatively fixed trajectory of the thing. Um, and if there's a relatively fixed trajectory, you can be further or less far along that trajectory. But I I think the reason we're kind of um, paying attention there is also that we think we can change that trajectory, right? And and China, you know, they're two months ahead. That doesn't mean in two months, if we do nothing, our situation will be like China's situation. It means, you know, they they got there first, but but they actually did a lot that that changed the situation quite a bit for themselves. And, And likewise, you know, Italy, they're saying, we're ahead of the rest of you. Here's what you need to know to not end up in the situation that we're in, to actually break off of this curve and and uh, get onto a different trajectory. And so that's interesting. There's just this uh, this interplay between sort of a determinism and a agency in, in changing that fate. Mm-hmm. Well, I think, of it as, I think of it as being similar to like a master-apprentice relationship. And by this, I mean that if you look at, if you look at anything that, you know, there's, there's mastery in, so everything from cooking to dancing to making music, you know, you name it, right? Building ships, whatever it is. Um, If you look at a master and you look at an apprentice, they have this relationship where the master is just kind of considered to be further ahead. Mm -hmm. Again, on some kind of curve, some kind of objective model that it's assumed that both of these agents are operating um, in this space and that the only thing that's separating the experiential, the phenomenological character of what the master is going through is time. Right. So the master and the apprentice are separated by time. And I think this is kind of what we're seeing with China and Italy, Iran and the United States is we're seeing that we're all kind of on this objective curve or we're postulating that we are. And we're saying that what's really different with us is time. And so the question we're asking when we're looking to see what China did, right, or what Italy did is we're looking to see how they responded to this moment in time. And we're looking to them and kind of questioning their mastery and saying, did they do, were they masterful, right? Was that the right move? I think some of these videos that are coming out of China now um, are are kind of dark. And I think they're calling into question this idea that China did such a fantastic job. You know, it's like uh, a lot of what they're doing isn't the kind of stuff that I think anybody here would feel comfortable doing in the United States just for maybe cultural reasons, maybe just, uh-huh. you know, lots of different reasons. Um, and so the question is like, yeah, this mastery, this idea, are, is, there, is there a right way to respond 
to these challenges that manifest at different places on this exponential curve. This is this is kind of our philosophical problem of the modern moment anyways, right? Mm-hmm. Is what exactly do we do when we're presented with two choices? Uh, how do we ground our choice to go left or to go right to, you know, to quarantine people or to lock it down or to completely shut it down and drag families apart, you know, like we're seeing in some areas. And so, again, I think philosophically this is this is rich and uh, full of opportunities for thinking. Um, but this temporal aspect is funny, you know, it's just, I, this is, I, I want to go back to that just because, you know, I recently clicked on an article where I think it was Italian doctors were sending a video log to themselves 10 days ago. Did you see this? I haven't seen that one. That sounds interesting though. Yeah. It's interesting because again, baked into it is of course, of course, of course, nobody thinks that they're actually sending a message to themselves 10 days ago, right? There's this, it's like this analogy for them sending a message yeah. to the United States and other parts of the country, you know, globe that aren't taking it as seriously, perhaps as the Italian doctors think we should, uh, lest we end up in their situation. Um, and so again, yeah, and it's it, it's especially interesting actually in that light. Um, you know, we often come up with these thought experiments like, what if you knew what was going to happen ten days in the future? How could you take advantage of that situation? And it, it, it's sort of this this sort of fanciful thought experiment most of the time but we recognize the incredible power that you would have in such a situation um that that even you know knowing the future is this huge powerful leverage point um and then i guess they're they're invoking that saying look you you know by, by addressing themselves in the past they're invoking that they're saying hey look you have this opportunity to know what's going to happen in the future and act to change it or act to take advantage of it and um yeah, I, I just I find that very interesting aspect of the thing. Yeah, I think knowledge of the future is something human beings have sought for forever, right? right? And there's a certain sense in which the scientific method and the predictions that are afforded by this method um, are some of the most powerful predictive instruments we've ever had access to. And and we're we're seeing it transform our world, right? Even in this moment, you know, again, on an exponential curve, different places on the curve aren't just quantitatively different; they're qualitatively different. And so, trying to explain trying to explain to someone, even ourselves, let's say four years ago, what's happening in this moment, you know, what the situation is, and what our day to day lives look like, it would just be such a f- bizarre thing, right? Like you would never. There's so many different ways of framing what's happening right now in March 2020 that would just seem like the most off-the-wall bonkers thought experiment <laughs> yeah. to somebody, you know, four years ago. Um, and so, and so again, like this idea of predicting the future, you know, I'm in the middle right now of uh, reading the I Ching and some of the commentaries on it. And so, mm-hmm. of course, for anybody who's not familiar, the I Ching is kind of a book of Chinese philosophy. Uh, it's kind of a collected book, same way like the Bible is is a book that's been assembled across generations, right? The I Ching is also this way, and like the main the main part of the text that people generally reference is from eleven, I think eleven fifty BCE, um, yeah. which is crazy, right? This thing's more than three thousand years old, um, and it was assembled partially for this idea of helping rulers, helping people predict the future, I guess is one way to think about it, but they didn't, I don't think they thought about it in the same way that we do. Um, they didn't have like an information theoretical sense in which you'd have some kind of knowledge or some kind of data about the future, but rather they saw that things in the world change and they don't change bizarrely. They change in ways that are, make sense, right? Like after the winter comes the stillness 
of, you know, pre-spring, then comes the rains of spring, then comes the blossoming, then comes, you know, the the summer, then comes the harvest, um, and then you're back in winter again. And that these kinds of cycles were, were the kinds of things you could understand. And, you know, of course, I'm mentioning the seasonal cycles, but there's so many cycles, right? Cycles of life, cycles of all kinds of things. And so they kind of worked this whole thing into a way of understanding where you are in this, like, multidimensional set of cycles. And rather than giving you the power to know what to do, it would let you know how the change was tending or how, like, how the movement was going. You could think of it as it would let you know which way the wind was blowing or which way the current was going. And then, of course, it was baked into their culture that a superior person would know how to respond to this and would respond to it like X and that an inferior person would respond to it like Y. And then, you know, leaders and people consulting this thing for oracular purposes could were left to their own devices to figure out what they wanted to do. And so that's a completely different way of thinking about knowledge of the future than we think of, where mm-hmm. we're thinking about collections of objects. We're thinking about gathering data or um, or of knowing something that isn't going to move. Like, I know what the stock market's going to be tomorrow. I can do things with that, you know? It's very different than knowing how economies go dormant and then reawaken on the other side of crises, right? That's kind of also the change that we're experiencing, but that's more of like a movement pattern, holistic, aesthetic kind of understanding of the future versus like a fragmented, discrete, objectified data, information, theoretical understanding of the future. And so I've just been thinking about this idea of trying to understand this, I guess, perennial desire of humans to know the future in advance so that they can do things. Right. Yeah. I mean, and, and right now it's, it's very difficult to know what's going to happen next week or next month. It's, it's, it's this weird, it's this weird moment. I think everyone recognizes that it's very strange that we don't have a whole lot of guidance for what to do about a global pandemic in the age of the internet and air travel and all this kind of stuff. Like we, this is the first global pandemic with these phenomena like the internet and like air travel, um, like Amazon and food deliveries, right? And text messaging, yeah. like, and in Zoom calls and podcasts, like this is not, you know, in 1918, they did not have this um, as part of their experience. So this is in a certain sense, very, very new and novel. And in a certain sense, this is something that happens, right? So you and I, before we hit the record button, we're talking a little bit about how outbreaks of viral diseases are concomitant with civilization itself, right? You yeah. can't get one without the other. So, you know, and, and, and this is this is not a foreign idea to us. You know, when you buy a boat, you know that part of what you're getting into is a thing where you're going to spend a lot of money on maintenance, for example, right? You can't have a boat without having to deal with the maintenance and the headaches and the expense of maintenance. Um, is that on your mind because you're living in a boat now? <laughs> I'm on a boat looking at a couple of boats. I'm looking at Alan Watts' old boat, the Vallejo. Um, yeah, I'm up here in the Sausalito, literal. Um, and yeah, you know, when you get involved with these things, you know that there's, I don't want to say a shadow side, but there's, there's, there's something to it, right? There's, there's ups and downs. There's, there's ups, ups and downs. downs. And, you, and you, you have to into. go into it consciously, knowing that you're getting involved in this. Um, you know, when you go to a movie theater, you know you're going to spend like $10 on a bucket of popcorn. Like, don't don't be surprised when that's part of your experience, you know? And I think when you build a civilization where people are living in close quarters to each other, where there are open markets, where there is air travel and people are moving around the globe freely, um, 
you're going to get global pandemics. And, and more generally, just there's going to be systemic risks in civilization when you've ever, whenever you have a very complex system, especially a novel complex system, there's going to be sort of these, these strange failure modes where the thing kind of rapidly breaks out into some other way of being, so to speak, that, 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 that isn't what you had planned for and isn't, uh, isn't very fun. Yeah, so it's a design question, right? How do we design, like given that this is the case, like instead of trying to pretend, pretend that we can build a world without pandemics or without the outbreaks of novel vir- viral diseases, if we know this is the world we're in, then we can design things differently. You know, if you knew you were building your house in one climate, you would design it differently than if you built your house in a different climate. Well, this is the climate that we're building our civilization in, right? Yeah. Well, the, the interesting thing about a pandemic is sort of the more seriously you take it and the more effectively you respond to its possibility the less likely it is to happen. <laughs> and like, like suppose we'd had kind of systems in place in our society that were much better at just kind of like social distancing when you get sick, wearing proper protective gear when you're around sick people or when you're in public, better hygiene, washing down public surfaces, um, you know, better control of, of just the... I mean, it doesn't have to be even all that active, but just like better passive mechanisms in the background of of kind of building into our civilization the possibility that there might be a pandemic. Um, I think there's this really interesting factor there, which is that that stuff all decreases the likelihood of the thing ever happening. And, you know, because that all limits the spread, mostly mostly like the ways you would prepare for a pandemic is like, I don't want to get it. You know, I don't want people under my charge to get it, Uh, you know, so we're going to change our behavior a little bit and it's just going to prevent it in a way. And and it actually just stops it from happening. So you only really get it. You only really get hit by these things when you've actually dropped the ball and, and you've you've forgotten to prepare or you haven't prepared. And then something that you haven't prepared for comes and gets you. Um, And and this, you know, speaking of Chinese philosophy, this is kind of related to. I did an exploration of the idea of the mandate of heaven recently. Uh, The the mandate of heaven is this idea that, uh, you know, the regime that's in charge basically has this legitimacy granted by, you know, the higher powers of the cosmos. Um, And sometimes that power is revoked and you can tell that that power is revoked if, for example, a deadly pandemic or a rebellion or a famine or some natural disaster is sent against that regime. Um, and, and in a way, there's, there's like a naturalistic logic to this, which is that, well, if, if you're sort of the governance of the complex system that is society, if that governance is kind of breaking down and starting to drop balls and forget important things, then it's going to get hit by one of these things. And that's also the point when you want to be thinking about how do we build a new one? Or how do we renew this thing? And and so there's this interesting, I, I don't know how to describe it, but but uh, it it gets you only when you're not looking uh, aspect to the thing. Um, well, I want to be I want to be somewhat careful about our language around here because I, I both totally get what you're saying and I'm on the same page. Um, but what I'll say is that things like outbreaks of viral diseases and earthquakes and asteroid impacts are not the kinds of things that can be prevented from occurring even with the best of governance structures, right? Yeah, not, not fully, of course. Yeah, and so, so th- again, this is a linguistic 
like issue that I'm raising, right? And it's not yours. It's like, I think it's in our cultures is we keep talking about how do we make sure this doesn't happen again, right? Never again. We don't want this to happen again. And I think a more mature look at this is, well, this is actually, this is just how it is, right? Like if you're in a particular part of the country and you get storms with strong winds, you're going to need to construct your buildings accordingly. Um, yeah. It's not so much that, you know, God hates you and you had a storm. It's like, no, 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 you have storms here. Um, but like you said, if the if the ruling, I guess I want to say ruling elite or ruling class or whatever, the ruling head, right, whatever part of this metaphor you want to lean in, whoever's in charge of designing the structure of the building or of the government or of the healthcare infrastructure, whatever it is, that you're leaning into and, you know, whatever sheltering you from these things. Um, if the person designing those does a poor job, then yes, it becomes immediately obvious to everyone that yeah. there's a problem, that something's rotten in leadership. Whereas, and this is why there's a weird asymmetry here. When these things are working, when your roof is functioning, you don't really think about your roof, right? Yeah, it's just, you it's think just about better. your roof when it leaks. <laughs> And so there's a sense in which if your healthcare system is functioning, um, if your disaster preparedness system is humming along smoothly, you're never going to notice it. And this is part of what's, I guess, almost like tragic in like the in like the Greek sense about maintenance and about the people who maintain and build infrastructure right. You know, yeah. who are really caring about doing it. They're they're almost invisible. Right In Heideggerian phenomenology, there's this idea that the things that are functioning at their best, uh, they kind of disappear from your conscious experience, right? So when you're hammering something, for example, and the hammer is doing its job, it's the right way, it's the right design, it's not, you know, it's, it's hammering the way you want it to, it ceases to be like something you notice. And it's only when the hammer breaks or when it's somehow not right for the situation it's too heavy or it's made out of the wrong material or something that's when you start to notice the hammer and i think on a civilizational scale infrastructure systems these kinds of things that governmental entities are really in charge of when they're really working they they recede from our conscious experience entirely they basically disappear they're invisible and yeah. the visible things are the problems which makes sense right we have to look at and attune ourselves to the things that are broken so we can address them and the things that are working we don't they don't really need our attention as much, but it's, they, it's a they bummer don't need it right now. <laughs> yeah. But it's a bummer for people who are advocating for these things, right. Who are advocating yeah. for doing a better job of infrastructural maintenance, um, or just building it the right way the first time kind of stuff. Yeah. Well, it has that, that sort of counterintuitive aspect where, you know, it's working really well. Therefore no one really takes, has to take it seriously anymore. Therefore you almost forget that you have to take it seriously. And then, and then that's the moment where it starts to decay and then you get hit by whatever it was defending you against. So we get back to Chinese cyclical philosophy, right? This yeah. idea that once everything's invisible and, and you forget how to build and maintain things appropriately, there is this kind of decadent decrepitude that creeps in that ends up leading back from order to chaos and then back again from chaos to order. And there's this cyclical nature to it. So then I guess the wisdom of, of this kind of eaching approach is you kind of take a step back, look at these big cycles, look at how these things go and just have the consciousness that there is like, you know, a moment when society is going to forget some important aspect and it's going to drop some ball and you're going to get hit by something and then there's going to be this recovery period and then you're going to be taking it very seriously for the next while that particular risk or perhaps risks in general yeah look at the tsa right and you 
like the, the, the sort of meta approach here is like, just be aware that this is something that happens, like that, that there is this cycle of like complacence followed by disaster, followed by vigilance, followed by not disaster, followed by complacence again. Um, and, and again, this is like, comes back to our theme here of our perception of time and so on. Uh, this is in a way just kind of, you're, you're expanding your horizons to see more than what is immediately apparent in the present moment. You're seeing these larger cycles that happen over history, um, and, and attuning your consciousness to those. And that's, that's really kind of the, the way to improve at this game is just to be paying attention to these larger context things in ways that you are not forced to by immediate circumstance. Mm -hmm. Bingo. I think attention is the concept here, right? So we're talking about this moment. We're talking about this disaster and implicit in the conversation is the question of what, so what do you, so what do we do? Right. Right. So what do I do? What is, what does anybody do? Um, what is the correct route of action, right? What is the way of the superior man, you know, to, again, to lean into the itching kind of conception of it. Yeah. And here, here, I think I have like a, a weird take on this. Um, that I'd love to talk to you about with you. But I think there's this assumption that we, there's two approaches. One is that we know what to do. We know who's to blame. We know what broke. We know why it broke. We, we not only can make sense of the entire thing, but we have a model that's pretty robust and that all we need to do now is use that model to understand where the problem was, fix that problem, and then we're going to be fine. And I think in a certain context, that's probably the approach, right? If you're running, you know, if you're doing an analysis of the preparedness of a particular hospital or something, okay, there's a certain sense in which that approach will be helpful, I think. The mm -hmm. other approach for individuals who might not have such a clear, clear model for improving something where it's like obvious where the breaking point was, um, maybe people who aren't, you know, obviously in those like positions of power is you know, what do I do? What do I do now? Okay, so I'm quarantined. And I'm seeing so much discussion on the internet of people being like, well, now I can get that podcast off the ground. Or now I can start that medium blog post that I've wanted to write for the last week or, you know, chew through that stack of books next to my bedside. Um, and okay, yeah, yeah, this moment, in some sense, is going to create the affordance for people to tackle things that have been on the back burner for a while. Yeah, opportunities to to pursue projects that pre-existed this moment, basically. Exactly, yeah. So there's that. Um, and what I'm much more interested in is a direct encounter with this moment. And by that, I guess I mean that we also have the opportunity to see this moment as calling forth for something from us. Yes. That it's that it's revealing something to us at both the civilizational level, but then at an individual level. And of course, those kinds of revelatory experiences only happen when you slow down. And when you, you're not on Twitter refreshing it every five minutes or, you know, panic texting people you know about the latest, you know, um, White House press briefing. Right. But you actually maybe just, maybe you just stare at the water for a little bit or you stare at the clouds or you meditate or you read a book at a leisurely pace, allow yourself to think in between paragraphs. But you kind of, I guess the phrase I would use again to lean on some of the Heideggerian thought in this space, the phrase I would lean on is like, you open yourself to the mystery of the moment. Mm -hmm. 
so before deciding that you know what this moment is, that you know what kind of category it falls into and what kind of a response is being called for, if you just take a breath, just take a pausing moment right before you conclude that you know what's going on and just allow yourself to be open to the big question mark of maybe you don't know what's going on right now. Maybe you don't know what this moment is in a broader framework. You don't know what's needed from you or what's needed from us as you know a broader system. And you allow yourself to discover or to kind of to uh, you release yourself to the possibility that something will occur to you um, that will help you understand what wants to be called forth through you or what wants to be brought forth through this moment. And so, of course, this might be the opportunity for you to, you know, sure, write write the blog post you've always wanted to write. But what if there's something else that, like, you is revealed to you as something that's worthwhile in this moment, that it's your thing? Like, what are the unique characteristics of you plus this moment, right? Kind of think of it like maybe like a recipe metaphor, right? Like there's like these flavor combinations that just kind of reveal something amazing and new and very different. It's not just one plus one equals two. It's that, I hate this phrase, one plus one equals three. You know what I'm talking about? There's like something more there. Um, There's there's the possibility there's something more about your unique collection of skills and experiences and perspectives and what's happening right now in the world that that wants to uh, that wants to bring something forth, and what that is, I don't, you know, again, I don't think we can conclude too fast, and I could never yeah. tell anyone what that is for them. That's really it's very unique to you, and I think it requires some stillness, it requires attention, it requires people to bracket what they think they know, and to kind of protect a space of just ignorance and openness for them to say, I, I have no idea what's going on. I want to. I want to understand that willing, that desire to understand, that desire to make sense is almost more important than the actual final sense making in some ways. Yeah. And and I think you described this earlier as a listening orientation rather than a speaking orientation. Like a speaking is an active thing. You have some idea. You want to bring that idea into being in some sense or project it into the world. And a listening orientation is the world has some things going on that you don't know about or understand and you want to allow the world to project those things into your being and, you know, be changed by that. And, and and I guess that's what you're getting at here is, is sort of taking a listening approach to the moment. And I think you also hinted, um, there's going to be this temptation to listen a little bit, come to some insight and then immediately kind of begin speaking that insight without further listening. Like uh, certainly this moment has, has, as you say, kind of had a very revelatory effect. There's been a lot of things clarified by, you know, uh, the, the whole situation, you know, the, 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 the existence of the pandemic, the threat to our parents, to our friends, um, you know, the, the degree to which people like, you know, some of our friends have been stepping up and helping out and some of our friends have been kind of sitting back and, and, uh, and the way our public systems have responded or failed to respond, the way various discourses have responded or failed to respond. There's many things that are very clarified by this. And I think that's like one of the big powers of this moment is that we are learning something from it. But at the same time, 
like the immediate temptation and 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 you know actually a, a not an incorrect kind of thing is is to then immediately spring into action okay the moment has revealed this thing to us we now need to act to act on this new insight um and i think there's many people doing that and, and doing good work in that way um and you know i'm trying to do some of that as well you know with palladium we're trying to kind of take advantage of the situation to uh you know offer offer sense making basically to our friends and community to to try to like shed light on the larger implications of the thing because that's kind of the way we see it, uh, our skills times this moment <laughs> equals that thing needs to be done. But, but there's this, I think maybe what you're getting at is, is you could take an even more kind of receptive approach to this thing and, and not necessarily leap into action after the first insight, but continue listening. Yeah. Instead of, you know, don't just sit there, do something. It's kind of like, don't just do something, sit there. Right. <laughs> kind of advocating for people to just take a beat. Um, Cause it's, 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 it's very easy to get the sense that you should be doing something right now. What are you doing? What are we doing? Here we are chatting about philosophical stuff and invoking books from 3000 years ago. And like, what is, what is the real point of this kind of stuff, right? When there's mm-hmm. actual on the ground suffering happening all over the globe that we're in this world historical moment that certainly needs us to throw everything we've got at it. Um, and so in a space like that, how does one justify making art or meditating or praying or taking a walk right? Or listening to a piece of music. Um, this is always the challenge is like balancing the exigencies of the present moment with this larger framework, which says that no, some of the most important things are these, these intervals, these moments in between where you don't, you're not actively working towards some goal. You're not doing anything, but you're allowing yourself to be in the presence of something that's really mysterious, which I think this pandemic is, I mean, it doesn't make a lot of sense to me in the sense that I, I don't feel like I know exactly where this is all going for sure, or what it's going to look like. You know, there's a lot of people on Twitter that'll prognosticate yeah. like they know exactly how this is all going to play out. Or, or even or even where it all came from, what happened exactly. Like there's a lot of uncertainty in this whole thing. Yeah. And I think that kind of uncertainty doesn't have to be the anxiety-inducing uncertainty. doesn't have to cause you to feel unsteady or unstable. This is just how the world is structured. We understand so much less of it than we generally think we do. And by just allowing ourselves to admit that frankly and be open to what we don't know, um, something new could reveal itself to us. And that revelation, that, that thing that kind of appears when we're not actively chasing it, could end up being the decisive thing you know at the end of the day that could be you know like god who who was it that discovered the benzene ring model uh, I, I don't remember their name but i do remember the story of the discovery the discovery yeah it like occurred to them in a dream right and descartes like had a dream where like some angel said to him that mastery of nature would be discovered through number and measure Right. You've got all these things where these like completely irrational, weird, revelatory things change the world. Um, But that only happens when you're not on Twitter. That only happens when you're not panicking and you're not feeling like you've got it all figured out. You're not. Yeah. Well, you're not you're not over engaged with the needs of the present moment. Yeah. And so broader context do that, realizing that this moment itself is like a very broad context, like 
we're not talking about a hurricane that happened across a couple of days. We're not talking about, you know, a terrorist event like September 11th that happened in a couple of moments. We're talking about like a slow motion disaster that's, that's unfolding across weeks and months. Um, and who knows, you know, possibly years. That's a, that's exactly the kind of moment that calls for these, these intervals, these interstitial meditative moments uh, we actually do have a chance to go for a walk. We actually, you know, of course, those of us who aren't being pulled into the exigencies of healthcare or something, right? If you're, yeah, I mean, yeah, many people do, of course. Many have people do not duties. have that luxury. But I think for everybody else who's thinking that this is a time to finally break out that adult coloring book, it's like, yes, totally do that. Um, and then just realize that you might, in the course of coloring things, uh, discover something you didn't realize that you uh, didn't realize you knew. Or you didn't realize yeah. you were going to find out when you picked up the coloring book. Yeah, I think I think an important thing here is like for the people not sort of right engaged in the active kind of OODA loop of the situation, uh, most of the important stuff that you will learn about the thing will kind of make its way to you. Maybe a week later than everyone else, but it will make its way, right? And and you will you will eventually kind of see the picture or what of the picture you kind of need. So you don't, you don't necessarily need to be on this like very plugged in, very active approach to seeking information about the thing. Though I think, I, I know that a lot of people have been uh, doing a lot of very good work by taking that very active, engaged approach. But I, I, there's, there's this like flip side to that, that I, you know, in many previous experiences in my life, I've, I've sort of like deliberately taken an approach of like, okay, there's lots of interesting stuff going on here, but the truly most interesting parts of it will, or like the big gist of it that, that I will want to reflect on will kind of filter its way out. Um, and, and so I don't need to be like deeply and actively engaging and I can kind of step back and, and focus on other things and wait for, wait for the immediate make wait for the implications of of like all the stuff that's going on right now to to come to me and that's that's i think like implicitly that's the necessary kind of um orientation in what you're saying is that you know we're not just ignoring the present moment and but in in not ignoring it you're also not having to kind of like take this very active engagement you're just like you know, you're aware that this thing is happening. You're aware of its of its existence. You're aware roughly of how it's playing out, but you don't have to be the one totally engaged in it. You can be taking this moment as, you know, the opportunity to kind of go off into the desert and, and reflect on other things. Yeah, there's a counterbalancing them. affordance here. It's yes. not it's not all one or the other. You know, there's right. some kind of special secret sauce, some mixed strategy where you're allocating some of your time and attention to this open meditative state and then some of your time and attention to following what's happening closely um, and climbing. You know, another way I think of it is like a local maxima, right? There's yeah. a local maxima that's out there that people are talking about and they are incrementally advancing themselves up that hill. There may be proximal more global maxima that we aren't aware of because we are so focused on just incrementally advancing ourselves up 
the you know in the position that we're in and so that's that's another way to think about it is just giving yourself the space and the time to kind of look up and look around again i think attention and awareness are key concepts here um just being aware of what's out there that maybe some other people aren't thinking of right so when everybody else is talking about what's the latest news on covid19 here you and i are we're having a chat about some esoteric philosophical ideas about the whole thing um right this is this is the crapshoot give it a shot see what happens throw it at the wall stuff that i think we need to do more of just to kind of see that we don't converge on an understanding and a kind of sense making that is actually just kind of a quacking sense making we're all just agreeing with each other because how dare anyone disagree you know there needs to be this space for people to say well okay i understand everybody thinks it's like this and i get that um have any has anyone thought that it might be like this other thing and like bear with me and hear me out and like it's crazy idea here we go um i think that's needed and i think it's never more needed than when it seems like you don't have space for it so i think that's where it comes back to the long now thing for me is this idea that you know when you're moving fast and breaking things is there some organization or some place that's providing you with an affordance or a reminder to slow down to preserve things to not break stuff because you don't know you don't know how to build it again right <laughs> like yeah. you know there's things that were there's things that are part of our experience that have been developed across eons and rather than just throw those out the window because we don't think they're optimal maybe we pause again just pause for a moment and offer them just a different um offer offer us offer ourselves to them differently so it's not just full on critique full on i understand what's going on and this is suboptimal but it's more of like saying oh maybe i don't understand this again the mystery and the question mark and they're just being open to things yeah and this this comes back again to the the point with the I Ching stuff i think that we talked about earlier that you know part of how you get into these things is by kind of focusing on the moment and and you know in the moment there's going to be a bunch of things that are doing important work but are invisible because they are doing important work and so if you're only focused on the present moment you're going to forget to hold those things up and you're going to move fast and break them and um and so there's sort of this you're talking about this countervailing pressure not just to slow down but to look at the larger context and to look at other things that are outside the present moment in a way that you're not forced or prompted to to learn larger contexts and and larger sort of imperatives that um that ultimately are going to be to your benefit or to the benefit of of the the thing you're pursuing um and, and so that's an interesting theme that that is coming up over and over here is just the degree to which unplugging from the moment and looking at the larger context the larger cycles of history the larger patterns um is in some way like it's a very receptive approach it's not an active kind of like here's the answer we just calculate through it and, and we just do that it's a receptive thing but it actually does offer you know not immediate gratification in the sense of immediate solution to our immediate problems but it offers a it offers an improvement over the the longer period of time in terms of like our ability to kind of be prepared for these things and and be in the shape that isn't going to be totally put out by getting hit by something um and and so 
you've been equipped by 10,000 years of civilizational progress to be here in this moment, right? And this was never the kind of thing you could avoid completely. Pandemics, outbreaks. But, but, but you're only equipped if you actually go and learn the lessons of history. Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely. I think, or, or you only understand how equipped you are, right? You only yeah. have that kind of interpretation if you're aware of just what's gone on, like even just the, the mystery of why it's taken a hundred years for another global pandemic to occur. You know, a lot of, a lot of the reason why it's taken hundred years. I mean, there, you can, you've probably seen a lot of videos of experts, Bill Gates and the like, who were recording videos like five years ago, talking about how inevitable a global pandemic is, right? Yeah. These things are going around like crazy. And it's like, it was one of the surest bets you could have made um, in the modern world is like, yeah, that you're going to have a global pandemic. In fact, the real mystery was why haven't we had one yet? Right. Why hasn't this already happened? And so in a certain sense, you know, we can be upset and angry that certain failures of leadership have led to this pandemic getting as big as it has. And um, as it's continuing to grow, we can also be grateful for the fact that we've had this, interregnum um protected for us to do things like develop the internet and amazon prime and snapchat and podcasts so that we can experience this differently and and is there a way that we can use all of this stuff that we have access to all of these technologies all of these modes of being um is there a way we can use these to 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 be in this moment i guess for lack of a better way like is there is there a way that we can be in this moment that is novel and appropriate to the challenge in front of us and the moment in front of us? Like how do we bring ourselves to this moment in a way that's seems appropriate, right? Like where we're at commensurate maybe is the better word, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it's going to need the best of us. It's going to need the best out of us for those of us that are calculative and, you know, the more engineering mindsets, it's going to need the best we've got for those of us that are maybe oriented towards philosophy or politics or something or art. Um, it's going to need the best we've got too. So how do we show up fully to this moment? And I think that's the, that's where just, like I said, unplugging a little bit, taking a walk, listening to a record, you know? So there's another theme that's going through this, which is having faith in some approach that can't be immediately justified. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think there's this temptation in Western thought in particular, I don't know, you know, perhaps beyond um, as well. There's this temptation to kind of ground everything in what can be calculated uh, and, and what can be argued and and never kind of take on faith um, an orientation or, or certain assumptions. And I think there's a way I, it's hard to articulate, but there's a way that this relates to this situation and what you've been saying as well. There's in some sense, you kind of don't know where it's all going. You don't know how you fit into the big story. You don't know there's this big mystery to things. And you, in some sense, embody a hypothesis in a thinking process, maybe, that is larger than yourself. And you just kind of pursue that hypothesis. There's some telos to you. Um, and, and you just sort of pursue that telos. And, and that telos cannot 
be justified in the moment by things that you immediately know because it's kind of like a, a hypothesis. I'm, I'm not sure how to articulate how this connects to this current situation and, and what you've been saying, but I'm sure it does. And, and it's somehow in like, you know, how you're, when you're explaining to your friends, no, maybe let's slow down and take this other approach because there's this mystery, there's this thing that we can grasp by listening instead of by acting. Um, there's implicit in there, there's this idea that you're kind of, you have this other idea that is different and you're just kind of not questioning that idea. You're just kind of running with it and seeing where it goes. And that's, I think, a very important philosophical idea in general. Yeah, I think you could do. I think you could do an entire podcast on this concept. Um, yes. It's breaking my heart that we're raising it now because I think you're hitting the bullseye. I think a moment like this calls you to think about how you think about this bigger picture, right? Especially when you're yeah. thinking in broad frameworks. And like you said, the question is, there's the Panglossian faith that everything's going to work out, right? This idea that like, oh, it'll all be fine, right? Um, yeah. And I think that's a very immature and very, I guess, coarse, uh, almost cartoon version of what you're getting at. Um, yeah. I think the more nuanced version, if I can take a stab at it, is Go something it. like, I have a faith that if we comport ourselves towards being itself, in a particular way, then what is necessary will be revealed and what can happen and needs to happen will happen. So it's a different kind of, it's not a blind faith or this kind of unquestioning belief that things are fine, but it's more of the belief that something's required for me, from my side of the table. And in this podcast, we've been talking about how my uh, my hypothesis is that it's this openness to the mystery. It's this recepti receptivity, right? Um, that if mm -hmm. we are going to do this, then the things that need to be revealed to us, they'll be revealed to us. We'll figure it out. We're going to make it through this, right? Again, my larger claim or my larger suggestion is that there's another 10,000 years ahead of this moment. Mm -hmm. In a news week like this week, it's easy to see how someone could be like, really, how do you have any faith that we're going to be here for 10,000 years. It seems like we're in the end times, you know? Um, and it's like, well, yeah, yeah, okay, okay. It's one claim I could make is it's always been the end times. Yeah. You know, the Vikings and, and have I always been I, just over the horizon, you know? I, I think the important aspect is maybe it is the end times and you can't prove that it's not, but you're still taking that bet. Yes, yes, fully agreed. Yes, there's, there's, which is to say that there's a certain way, a certain mode of being that is appropriate to challenging times like this. And what is that mode of being? Is it complete nihilism? Is it giving up? Like in another month, Wolf, like the numbers around this pandemic are going to look very different. Yes. And you and I are either going to be shaking our heads in disbelief of how it could have gotten so crazy. It shouldn't have never gotten this crazy or hopefully, hopefully shaking our heads in disbelief is like, wow, we really dodged a bullet there. This was supposed to be way worse. Right. Um, the yeah. odds of it being exactly how we predict today are pretty low. Yeah. Um, yeah. No, cause we just don't know anything. Yeah. And so, but I think, I think you're right to think of this as a faith based conundrum is yeah. if you, and, and and what I'm, what I'm getting at more deeply is, is the necessity of faith in some fundamental orientation 
that is going to be different between different people. It's not like it's not a it's not a evangelistic faith, right? It's not like and this is also right for you. It's it's like my orientation, my fundamental being is oriented in this way. I know that to be or, or like I have some somehow some faith that like I must approach this problem this way. Yeah, for me to show and, up fully, it looks like this. And and like this is sort of a fundamental theme that I want to get at is like, this is outside of any particular crisis time or outside of any particular mystery. There is this general necessity to taking your fundamental teleology on faith. And like, I think the, the most, the sharpest way that this kind of manifests in philosophy or one of the sharpest ways it manifests in philosophy is the problem of induction uh, that, it, you know, you can't gain knowledge without making assumptions basically um and those assumptions are what i'm talking about like somehow to to know anything about the future to have learned anything about from the past is requires a faith that there are certain regularities to the universe um and and so that that's like a very sharp way that it comes in but then expanding from that idea you get i think actually a very rich uh, necessity of assumption and necessity of like faith in some fundamental teleology and so on. And, and so I just wanted to kind of like invoke that concept and bring it in here because I think it's relevant to how we deal with very high uncertainty disasters because there are like, we can't possibly know what's going to happen. It, there's, there's like, this is not a problem that you can calculate your way through in a purely rationalistic way with very minimal assumptions. Rather, I think the way these things get resolved is there's many people, many pieces of the puzzle working on different little hypotheses and pursuing those different hypotheses. And some of those hypotheses are going to make it through the crisis and some of them are going to be refuted and are going to have to be changed. And, you know, if you think about, you know, widen our time horizons a little more, 65 million years ago, there was the kind of the rule of the dinosaurs, right? The dinosaurs had control of the earth. They, their order was supreme. And there were these tiny little rat creatures kind of running around between their feet that were the proto mammals. And, you know, the, the mammals were not aware or possibly aware. There was no possible awareness that they could have had that they were onto something different or better than the dinosaurs. They were just kind of doing their thing. And then the world gets hit by this asteroid, this huge crisis and it turns out that the mammal pattern is just a better way to construct life after that fact. You know, the, the reptiles are still there, but they didn't recreate the dinosaurs. Instead, we got mammals. Um, and I think that's like that's analogous to the situation is like we're getting hit by some crisis and there's there's a bunch of different fundamental orientations in play. And at some point, you just have to take your fundamental orientation on faith or just for granted and, and run with it and see where it goes. And like, you know, allow God to refute you if you are to be refuted in a way. Yeah, I get where uh, you're coming from. I mean, I'm seeing on Twitter a whole bunch of people who are kind of celebrating this mass death event as just what the world needed. Like, thank God the world has responded yeah, to our I mean, it's a very approach to it. But yeah, and, well, and, and it, it's like, okay, that's their fundamental orientation towards this is that that humans are um, insignificant 
or that, you know, if anything, we've been something, you know, you hear metaphors like humans are a cancer on the planet, right? These really anti-humanist approaches, which I personally find a bit distasteful and yeah, in their stronger, you know, versions, a bit abhorrent. Um, obviously, baked into this idea of the next and last 10,000 years is this very civilization-centric uh, approach, right? So in this decentering moment we're in, right? In the, in the grand, long now sense of a moment, right? Where you start with the Copernican decentering, you know, the, yeah. the Earth isn't the center of things. You have this Freudian decentering, where even your conscious experience isn't the center of everything. And then now we're at the spot where there really is no preferred center. That it's all just, you know, it's all just sound and fury, right? Um, I think there's an opportunity for a recentering. Yes. And the question is, what is the best center? What I love about the long now idea is that it's taking the new center as this moment in time. It's actually 20,000 years wide, um, but it's but it's centered, right? It's centered with you and me here right now. But rather than being selfishly centered on your and I's lifetime or your and I's generational moment and how we're changing culture or something, it's actually it's actually how we as a group of you know mammals um are gathering together and doing this civilizational thing and how that's changing everything from the very planet that we're on to how we make sense you know it's just like it's really its own trip um and so i think we're in this moment that calls for the postulation of better centers um and, and i think when you're talking about your fundamental assumptions and things it's like things you're taking on faith it's like one of the things that i think is baked into this to put it in the faith language, which I, I don't think we often do, but um, I'm happy to here on this podcast with you, is this idea that we're taking it on faith that civilization itself is the kind of thing that is adaptive enough to respond to crises like these such that we will endure for another 10,000 years at least. Like that is a faith-based assumption. Like who knows if we're, if civilization's got the, the chutzpah got the moxie, got what it takes to last another 10,000 years. A lot of people think we don't, right? But they yeah. don't have any more proof of that than I do of my side of things. Um, and inductively, we're not going to really come to a conclusion. And so we do just yeah. have to say, so So it's kind of like, um, you know, obviously Pascal has written a lot about this kind of a thing, right? About how, you know, when you have these forced options, when you have to make a choice between zigging and zagging, like, how do you choose? It's all fine to say, oh, either one's just as good. But like, if a gun's to your head and you got to pick, which one do you pick? And of course, Pascal wrote a lot on kind of leaning into faith. Uh, for him, it was like a very Christian faith, right? He was very much <laughs> leaning into faith in God is like, hey, he almost had this utilitarian calculus of like, yeah, you don't, you know, what do you got to lose? You know, it's like, a, it's totally just the right, right back. Yeah, it's a game, it's a game, yeah, it's game theoretically Pareto optimal, um, which I guess, sure, that's one way but, of thinking but, about yeah, it. Yeah, I mean, he's, he's, he's there, he's trying to like ground it in some kind of reason, but I think, I think it was really motivated reason there. And there was actually something deeper powering that and because that argument is not that great. <laughs> No, but again, like this is where I think of this openness to the mystery. I actually yes. think it's grounded in this very unique confrontation or encounter between the individual and being with a capital B, right? Like everything that manifests around you, everything that isn't you, you know, mm -hmm. um, almost the Spinozan God, right? This like, um, this like just expansive conception of what it like what it, what being is like in that encounter between you and everything around you. Um, is there, is there a relationship? Like, is there something important and significant about that? Or is it just, 
is it a fiction that there's anything right like you think about things like love right between two people if you love somebody like where is the love right like can you point to it and What's you know mass? yeah it's like you get this uh, i've heard this called nothing buttery right like this like materialist right. reductionist approach where it's like oh love is nothing but chemicals in the brain music right. is nothing a bunch but bunch of pitched sounds um but like if you take it seriously for a moment like obviously we know that these kinds of things like love and hatred these are like real things in a certain sense sometimes they're like the most real things in our phenomenal experience um right. i think there's something to the phenomenological experience of confronting being openly that that speaks to the that testifies to the fact that that relationship isn't just nothing that there's something significant being called from you by the moment and that the moment itself is going to grant something significant to you that there's you know you can almost think of it as a quid pro quo but not quite so object based but this idea that like if i show up is my best self then being itself won't won't god what's the way i want to phrase this i want to be really careful with my words because it's not like if i do this then everything's going to be fine right it's more of well it's like that that's a claim the the claim that like if i do this it's somehow going to work out or this is somehow going to be the right approach that's it's not something you're capable of knowing. If you take this sort of modern skeptical kind of like fact-checking approach, that's like not a claim that you can make. On the other hand, what I was getting at with bringing up that like fundamental necessity of faith is that it's almost, a, it's a claim you have to make anyways, even even though you can't justify it. Yes, um, totally. And, and I think there's this, there's an interesting tension here, and perhaps that's what you're getting at. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 the lack of justification for your comportment towards the world. Um, there is no final justification for it, um, and that then you just but you still have to comport yourself, right? Yeah, right. You can you comport yourself. You show up to the moment, and you you do what you're called to do, and you kind of see what happens. <laughs> and I think another way of saying the same kind of thing is that you know we tend to think that we are outside of something observing it like somehow i'm observing this pandemical moment and i'm right. like judging it from you know some archimedean point out in the middle of nowhere um but truthfully i'm in it right i'm in the pandemic uh, pandemical moment and so there's this sense that like i have to take a stand on things and even if i choose to not take a stand right if i just like bracket it or push it aside or ignore it or distract myself not taking a stand is in itself a stand you can take right the only thing you can't do is not have a stand because you're here yeah you are a stand taking being that's a constitutive element of what it is to be a human being yeah um, you are you are in fact in the world yeah so again this gets i think to your faith point it's saying like there is this stand that you have to take you can't avoid taking it even to not take a stand is to take a stand and therefore what stand are you taking and it's kind of like it's almost like this calling moment like a poker game you know what i mean we're like it's like somebody's moments like this are kind of calling you saying okay yeah. what stand are you taking but it's it's like you know you you can't not take a stand but this is also not a claim without implications i and i think the reason i bring it up is that i see a lot of people uh you know I, I, as i sort of began with is like trying to calculate everything and getting and getting anxious about the fact that they can't calculate everything or that they can't kind of know what the right orientation is there or or second guessing themselves or are just like somehow becoming hobbled in the thing out of fear or out of like social 
lack of justification or like there's all kinds of different motivations that people have here but like i guess what i'm kind of advocating and bringing up this faith point is like what if you just listen to what is that fundamental thing in yourself and like stop kind of layering over it with layers of questioning and second guessing um because the the questioning and the second guessing are kind of like the less interesting part of what you are and and often are getting in the way of of carrying out this interesting hypothesis that you can't justify but is actually very important um it's well said and yeah and so so that's what i'm trying to get at it's like it's it's like you know you you can't not have an orientation but you can also kind of like there is an agency in whether you kind of allow yourself to take your orientation seriously. I agree. I think that's really well put. Yeah. And, and so I guess like the, the theme through this podcast has been sort of, we've been sort of building up through these, these themes. The idea is basically like, let's, let's step back from this immediate moment of the pandemic, um, broaden our horizons a little bit, look at these larger contexts, look at the larger moment that we're in that, you know, the long now, so to speak. Um, and, and kind of listen to those things and listen to the present moment and listen to our own fundamental orientations in a way that isn't as active, isn't as like much trying to change the thing, but it's more allowing the thing to change us and allowing the thing to drive us. Yeah. Um, more pulling and that, than pushing. Yeah. And, and this is, this is, I guess I'm trying to summarize like, what is this theme that we're getting at here? Uh, and I think it's something like that. It's this the the receptive approach to the thing, but that but that fleshes out in ways that you wouldn't get just from the word receptive. And the receptive thing as a counterbalance to the active piece, right? Like there's definitely if what you're being called to do is is active, and so many people thankfully are yes. acting, right? Um, that is what's being called out through them. But I think for the rest of us who don't have such clarity, you know, maybe we're not. ICU doctors, for example, right, who know exactly what they're doing today. Um, for those of us who are sitting there just looking at the books by our bedside table, or we're looking at a blank medium page, you know, uh, as we're getting ready to write, and we're just kind of doing stuff because we feel like we should be doing something. We feel like we should be acting some way. Um, I guess what I want to do is give permission to the people who feel like what's being asked of them right now is to listen um, and to create space for something to be revealed to them uh, upon which they can act at that point. Um, but I want to push back against this zeitgeisty feeling that we should all be doing something right now. Let's do something. Um, you know, right. in a certain this sense, crisis demands actual total mobilization. In a, in a way, it's like, ironically, it demands kind of total demobilization. Everyone go home and hang out for a few weeks, right? Total uh, listening. Total listening, total openness. <laughs> Yeah, because like again, I think some people through the being open to things are just going to be very clear that they know what they got to do. They know yeah. what needs to be done, and like you know, Godspeed. That's that's great. Um, if things are that clear for you, then yeah, some you're probably not listening to, be... to this podcast. You're probably working somewhere on yeah, something. No, right actually, now. actually, I think many of them are listening to this podcast. I know we have a lot of friends in in our network who. I would say certainly are called to be acting right now, and and they are acting, and they're pursuing some orientation within themselves that drives some high powered action in such a moment. And, and I fully respect that. And I think that's awesome. But what, what we're talking about here is, is not like don't do that and do this other thing, but rather do the thing that you are being called to do 
And, and I think for some people, yeah, that's a very active approach. And for some people, for mo I think for most people right now, it's, it's this like step back, don't contribute to the problem and focus maybe your attention on these larger, more receptive ways of being. And y you mention it repeatedly as a counterbalance to um, kind of current dominant ways of being. Um, and I think that's an important aspect here is like when it's especially important to be kind of taking your own fundamental teleology seriously is when it's different from what everyone else is doing. If you have something that's driving you, if you have, if you seem to be called to do something that no one else is going to do, that is, those are, I think, like some of the most important moments when, when you're called to do something that no one else is going to do. You know, when, when you're that little mammal rat creature crawling around under the legs of the dinosaurs, very different pattern of life from everything around it. Um, those are the things that are sort of most important to take seriously, I think. I agree. I think that's a good way of putting it again. And I think maybe one of the ways I could kind of sum up my side of this thematically would be to point out that, you know, we've talked about a lot of the ways in which this particular pandemic is unique, right? Because of the internet, you know, connectivity and Amazon Prime. Okay, fine, all those, all those things. Um, but I would say the most unique part of this pandemic is that you're here. You're here. Right. Like that is, that is, the rest of it is a rounding error. The most important aspect of this moment is that it's the moment that you're in. And no other pandemic, you can't be in the 1918 flu pandemic. You can't be during, you know, you can't exist during the Black Plague. You're here, you're in 2020, you're in March, if you're listening to this. And it's, that's, that's worth attending to. That's worth giving a lot of credit to and a lot of, lot of your attention and focus so i guess that's kind of me summing up my point here is this is this is your pandemical moment um, what is it what is being called forth from you what wants to come into being through you um i can't answer that but if you're lucky you might be able to well we started with the the chirping birds there on your end it sounds like the wind is picking up now <laughs> oh it does uh, okay yeah um but yeah, this has been a very interesting discussion. I think it. I think we can wrap it up. It's been sort of a very. I, I, I guess the point of it has been to re be refreshing and to step back a little bit. And anyways, I, I didn't know where we were going to go with this. I wanted to explore. I wanted to see how it would happen. Uh, I, I just knew that it would be important. Um, and I think it's turned out well. So thank you so much, Nick, for coming on the show. Thank you for the invitation and the opportunity, Wolf. I really appreciate it. It's been an absolute pleasure talking with you this afternoon. Great. All right. Well, let's uh, leave it at that. See you all next time.